right, so welcome to Barn Banter with Cowboy Andy, the podcast for children's musicians by a children's musician. And right at the moment, we have someone on the line who's going to chat with us about their career, their ins and outs, the knowledge, the wisdom they've earned and learned the hard way by doing it the right way. And a personal hero of mine, a great innovator, one of the most creative people, I think, in the industry, and doing something that I don't even think I can do, which is hip-hop. And so, uh, yeah, hey, welcome to the bar and Secret Asian 23 Skidoo. Man, I didn't know you were going to say all that nice stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should expect it. I got a whole basket full of nice stuff to give you. It just It's all words, so that's where it's at. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for joining. Uh, I want to... I know a bit about your music. I think I have, you've, you've come out with, I think, six or eight albums and a lot of collaboration, and I've, I've tried to keep up on almost everything you've done. But I don't know a whole lot about your uh, creative path before your album uh, Easy in 2008, which was your, your first sort of children's music album, I think. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, so let's see. First of all, uh, six full albums one EP, uh, one piece of vinyl, two books, and at this point, uh, 36 singles beyond that. Holy cow. Do you put the singles on the albums or are those like by themselves standalones? Th- those are standalones. Oh, wow. Was it, was Mozartistic the, uh, the EP? Mozartistic is the EP, yeah. That that's got the... two like original full songs and then one remix of that and then you know, that was done with the symphony. So uh, we also put a version of Turkish March, Mozart's Turkish March on there as well. So uh, yeah, that's kind of a cool mix of music. Oh man, but that's a rich catalog. I mean, just like at that volume of content that you've been able to put out there and the quality that's been maintained, that's brilliant. Well, thank you, sir. So what was it like before 2008 when you released Easy? What were you up to during that uh, part of your time? Well, at that point I had been in a nationally touring live funk and hip-hop group for about, I think, like 11 years at that point. Mm -hmm. Basically, I started traveling when I was pretty young and was just really into being a traveler and seeing the country and having adventures and experiences and whatnot. You know, got to reading Jack Kerouac when I was really young, and I think that influenced my mind. Um, and so I was into hitchhiking, I was into train hopping, I was into going all over the place and I was into street performing. So for me, it all started with, I learned how to play hand drums, basically, um, you know, African hand drums, Jimbe and Ishiko. And so I learned how to play that. And then I learned how to freestyle rap and play that at the same time. So it started with that kind of street performance where we would either be doing that or we would have a bunch of people beatboxing, or we might have like a little breakdown three piece trap kit. Sometimes this one guy even brought a stand-up bass. You know, we had a group of us kind of that would travel around the street perform in the street performance meccas of America. Just, you know, basically places where there's a downtown area where a lot of people walk around. You know, you could really have a lot of fun and basically clean up if you know what you're doing. So we started that way and then ended up all coming together in Asheville, North Carolina in 96 and decided that we would actually put down roots buy instruments, actually write songs, you know, and become a band. Uh, But the cool thing is we had done so much traveling before that, that once we actually got on the road and started playing shows, we had already kind of put our stuff. We'd even released tapes kind of before that while traveling. 
our tapes were somewhat freestyle, somewhat written. But, you know, through all that, we sort of had like a, a bit of a national following before even touring that way. So it kind of made transitioning to touring a lot easier. Like we basically sold out our first East Coast tour and our first West Coast tour just kind of off of word of mouth from all the street performing. That's but you put in the effort. I mean, you had you had done the job basically ahead of time to build your skill, get together a group of of cohesive musicians to play with, and kind of got out there to get your word ahead of time. Yeah, well, that's a lot of it, and that's something that I think is interesting these days. I know that one thing that I always say is that live performance is always going to help you out because a you're building skills, b you're having fun if you're doing it right, and c you know, you might also make money off of that, right? Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people at this point, because of uh, reliance on social media and that type of thing, feel like they have to kind of sit in their bedroom or sit in their practice space and craft the perfect thing and wait until it's, you know, completely done and then wait and craft the perfect campaign to bring it out and all of that stuff. And it's like, man, just just book a show and go. We When we uh, sold out the first East Coast tour, we only had three songs. We would play two and a half uh, hour long shows that were, you know, 90% improvisation. Hmm. Just us up there having a good time. That's, I think, that gave me the courage to do a lot of things that I do in life uh, artistically because it's like, man, if you can get up on stage, you know, with 100 people that paid to be there and you don't even have a song written yet and you could just go, okay, you know, we're all here to be entertained, like us on stage and us in the crowd. So let's just have a good time. And that that vibe right there, that contagious, uh, symbiotic good time, that's the root of everything. Well, and you can kind of do that with kids, too. You can build some open-ended songs and some open-ended engagements and just sort of not have a set list, just go up there and figure out, well, what are the needs of the crowd and what are my needs today and, and where can we meet and, and entertain each other and move the whole thing forward. Oh, yeah, man. Kids are the best collaborators when it comes to being in the crowd. Everything that you want uh, grownups to do in a usual, you know, a bar show or a theater show, whatever it is, grownups have to get past all their hangups first. Mm-hmm. And kids don't even have those hangups yet for the most part. So kids are, you know, they're ready to jump up. They're ready to get loud. They're ready to dance. They're ready to get on board with the thing that you're creating. And that's been one of the most fun things for me is that, like, you know, if, if you get creative, if you get adventures, they'll go right along with you. Right. So after you sell out the tours and you, you're getting a name for yourself, what was the next stage, the next uh, next part of the, tr- of the journey for you? Yeah. And, and before that sounds like too big for my bridges, when I'm talking about selling out uh, tours, I'm talking about, you know, that little bar that fits like 50 people in it. (laughs) And there was like 14 of us on stage. So (laughs) that's, that's half the space right there. (laughs) A little Um, reality check there, but, but still, you know, but still. Yeah, but still. And, you know, and so we were doing that at that point. And, uh, you know, at this point I was probably just 20 or 21 and didn't have a whole lot of real aspirations beyond that. We were having a great time improvising. We, you know, just kind of living the life in your early 20s and just enjoying it. Um, and I was working at a, uh, a T-shirt shop, uh, a silkscreen printing shop. And then um, somebody came in who worked for P-Funk, for Parliament Funkadelic. Mm-hmm. And they were getting T-shirts printed. And we told them that we had a show that night. And so this person who worked for P-Funk came to the show. And I guess, like, I don't know, something about the weird 
chaos on stage, the funky chaos on stage. She rec she recognized some kind of like a kinship there in what she saw with P Funk, and so she hooked it up so that we went down to Atlanta and recorded for a few days in P Funk Studios down there. And like Steve Boyd, the guy that sings Gin and Juice for Snoop Dogg, that was the guy that was working the session. Uh, and there was like different P-Funk cats that were there. And, you know, it was interesting because, I mean, we were writing the songs, you know, in the studio and on the way down to the studio. We didn't really have songs, but we knew that we had to come up with something. Uh, so in going down there and doing it now, that music, it never really amounted to my, a lot of that stuff in that form anyway didn't ever even get released. But just being seen in that way through those eyes, especially through the eyes of somebody like, you know, working with P-Funk, um, that kind of made us see ourselves in a completely different way. Hmm. And that made us see ourselves as, uh, I guess, musicians that had worth right. and that had potential and that had uh, a unique angle that we could maybe, you know, do something with. So I really credit that person her name is Pam. She knows she knows who she is. Um, I really credit her with giving all of us the gift of, you know, self-awareness and, and understanding of self-worth. And it was really it was a really big wake up call for us. So from there, we just continued to write, put out albums, continue to tour. And it was cool, man. It was like a decade of national touring. We even got to the point where we opened up for P-Funk. We got to get up on stage and freestyle with P-Funk at one point in New Orleans. You know, we got to tour on a tour bus. It was it was cool. That's fantastic. I mean, that's sort of the can't put that in the bottle and sell it type life experience. Yeah, it was it was great. And, you know, and it was cool. But also, like I said, there was like 12 to 14 sometimes people on stage. You know, when you start doing the math on that, even a even a good show with people paying money once the time, uh, you know, once you break that down into everybody's hotel rooms or the gas for the cars or the bus or whatever it is and you know uh, promotion albums you know once that breaks down to like what everybody finally gets you can be living that life and still be pretty broke mm -hmm. which which we were right around when i was turning 30 that band kind of not broke up exactly but destabilized like you know when you have that kind of a group of people in one sense it's really stable because I mean, you got 14 people. If one leaves, you still got 13, right? Mm -hmm. But there are certain people that really hold things together. And at this point, it was, it was our basis. Our basis had to take off and do other things. And all of a sudden, we were left in that situation of just like, I don't know, man. Like a family member left. Now, a lot of bands would just start auditioning another basis. That's what would have made sense. But we were so tight like a family that it seemed like sacrilege to audition somebody so we started trying to come up with ways around it workarounds like what if we just play synth bass or right. you know what if we play songs that don't have bass in them or, you know it was ridiculous basically for about six months and you know that was a huge wake-up call for me again being like oh this thing that i thought is stable is not stable and at that point i had a five-year-old daughter mm -hmm. you can believe in something so much that none of the obvious things or the logic or or the or the odds that are against you uh are visible and it's, and i would say in a lot of senses to be a professional artist you have to go through phases where you believe in the near impossible mm -hmm. but that was the moment where some of that wool was pulled back for me and i realized that uh if i was going to be a professional musician i would have to have a little bit more control 
of how things were going to go down. Did you have that personal spark inside you? Uh, was it something that you recognized that, that you had the ability to self-manage, you had enough discipline to trust yourself to, to take that walk by yourself? Because when you're in a group of 14 people and you're collaborating like that, you can, you can roll with things and you're, you don't have to be uh, personally responsible necessarily for that group decision. But then you, when you go off on your own, did you know that you had that in you at that time? Or I mean, I knew I, I knew I had to. I wasn't really that person in the band with, with all the people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking back on it, it was funny. We would discuss that a lot even in the band, talking about, you know, different political systems and comparing that to the way the different bands work. Because sometimes you have somebody who's a clear you know, leader and they, they call the shots and whatnot. Sometimes you have things where there's multiple leaders, depending on what job you're talking about. And then sometimes it's just kind of like a, it's just anarchy. Basically we were, we were going for a good type of anarchy and sometimes it worked really well. And sometimes on stage, especially it worked really well, but uh, management and whatnot, it did not work very well. Um, As far as my ability to do that. I mean, like I say, I believe in myself and I've always believed in myself but I, I didn't have the experience of doing that, really. I just kind of knew that, you know, as a family man, I would have to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And part of that for me was learning how to do the music that way. Like, you know, part of hip hop is sampling and coming up with beats. And I'd been doing that for a while. So I knew that I could put together an album that way, which I did. Now, the great thing is, as that's continued to grow, I now have this great balance of both of those things where now for most of my albums, I work with a whole lot of live musicians, but I always have a very clear idea of what we're going for. I work with musicians that I trust. So when I come in and say, this is what we're going for, and then they tweak it, they always make it way, way better than it is in my head. But, um, but having that clear idea, a friend, of, a friend of mine and I were talking the other day. He's a visual artist. He's actually doing um, some album art for me right now. He was talking about how the worst thing in the world is when people call him up and they say, yeah, man, you know, just just do your thing. And he's like, this sucks because they don't have an idea what they want. Now they want me to do my thing. And I know that they kind of do have an idea what they want. They just don't want to say it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, because what this comes down to is people assume people have this assumption that the best creativity comes from a complete lack of limits. And that could not be more untrue. The truth is that if you have limits, self-imposed limits, then that is what defines the art and that's what makes it potent. You know, you think about light, light's just light, but if you give it limits and if you give it boundaries and if you focus it, then it becomes a laser. And, you know, that's the same thing with this. Is like, that was honestly, I think, one of the biggest differences between my previous band and, you know, the family band. Because since I was calling all the shots and had a really clear idea of it, I think it became a laser. Mm-hmm. Well, a blank canvas to me is the hardest thing to start with. Like putting that first word down is always the great, just like the challenge when I'm when I'm trying to force creation, force creativity. But when I when it's inspired and it's like, oh no, I have a story now. I just have to tell the story, and it can be within those, you know, within the parameters of a story that makes sense, and then it can go anywhere. That's right. Hemingway referred to that blank page as the white bull. Well, you have to ride the white bull. Yeah. Okay, so you you decide to the the group that you're with, the collective kind of breaks down. You go on your own, and you have a child. 
you know, that's one of the problems about being in a band sometimes is if you are in a band and you have a kid at home, the better one side goes, the worse it is for the other side. When she was three weeks old, I did a three week tour. You know, we always used to play Halloween all the time because that's a big, you know, for funk bands and whatnot. That's a, that's a big night. It's a party night. And I just remember sitting there actually in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and my daughter's five. You know, we already did sound check, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just watching all these kids, all these beautiful kids in all their awesome costumes roll by, and I'm just, like, so bummed out, mm-hmm. you know, because Halloween's my favorite. Mm-hmm. And I missed so many Halloweens when she was young. Uh, you know, previous to five, because we would always be someplace in the world playing music. I just remember at that moment being like, I'm not missing any more Halloweens. No way. And so I was really, I was searching for something that at that point I thought was impossible, which is to be both, you know, heavily in my kid's life, but also a heavily touring musician. You know, it's one of those things I couldn't really put words on or anything, but those were just, those were two of the, that was the dilemma that was happening in my life at the time. And then I was down at my uh, wife's parents' house for Thanksgiving. One of the neighbors had just heard one of the very early Stephen Shepard, Small Things Considered, I think it was called at that time, hmm. him talking about the, the just emerging family music scene, kindy scene, uh, on NPR. Right. Okay, so I'm going to jump in here a little bit just to give some historical perspective. The cat that uh, Skidoo just talked about, Stephen Shepard, has a website called Zoo Global, Z-O-O-G-L-O-B-B-L-E. And when I entered into the kindy, kids independent scene, I, w- I quickly learned that Stephen was the person that was really the gatekeeper, keykeeper, dungeon master, dungeon master, the dungeon master. Children's Modern Music. Uh, Stefan, S-T-E-F-A-N, has reviewed hundreds of children's music albums, has been doing this since 2002, started writing music reviews and newsletters and posting them on the internet back when they were still chiseling the internet with like stone tablets and, and that sort of thing. Do yourself a favor. If you've not caught up with Zoo Global, Go there, spend a couple hours reading children's reviews and getting a historical perspective on this genre. Just in general, someone totally to check out Zoo Global after the podcast. And so they told me over Thanksgiving dinner, they're like, oh yeah, I just heard this whole piece on NPR about how there's this emerging, you know, independent family music scene. Like, have you looked into that at all? And uh, I mean, I thought about it. I, I at that point had already written a kid's book one time just because I felt like doing it. And so then, you know, it was pretty cool. I already had like 10 of those printed, gave them to some friends, had a really good response from that, went ahead and printed a thousand of them and sold them on the tour with my band. And so I already kind of had this idea that that was something that my creativity worked for. Mm -hmm. You know, when you hear something three times, my my wife had definitely been like, oh, you should think about maybe you should do family music, you know? And I was like, oh, that's a thought, you know? And then put out this book and people dug it and I'm like, oh, that's a thought. And then, you know, it was just kind of the that third thing when when the neighbor was like yeah i just heard this npr piece and i was like yeah maybe this is something so i went home and i looked it up and i I, you know saw some of the early bands that were doing it like justin roberts and they might be giants and uh lunch money and i was like man this is really cool and i tried to look into it and see if anybody was really doing hip-hop and there's pretty much nobody doing hip-hop so i was like oh man this would really be something that's a wide open market isn't it Mm -hmm. so i wrote a few songs and i 
I didn't really think anything about it one way or the other. It was interesting. I think the songs were pretty good. Gotta Be Me was one of the first ones I wrote. But they were just kind of sitting. And then I was trying to figure out what I was going to do because, like I said, my band was sort of unstable and I knew I had to move forward somehow. So I booked my first solo show just as a rapper, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was miserable. It was just sleeting outside, disgusting sludge rain falling from the sky. I was kind of sick. Uh, so I was up there just like, you know, drinking like medicine on stage, like hippie cough syrup medicine and doing these songs. You know, there weren't very many people there, you know, but I was doing what I felt to be the necessary steps. One of the people that was there came up and said, hey, man, what's up? I used to work at a studio in Atlanta where you and your band came down and worked on some things and we mastered some things for you. I really like your stuff. If you have anything you want to record, let me know and we can just do it. And uh, I was like, cool, do you have recording equipment? He's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, all right, cool, man. Um, Call me when you get recording equipment, and we'll talk about it. And he called me two days later. He's like, I I just got back from Atlanta. I got everything we need. I was like, well, to be honest, the only thing I really have written right now is his family material. And he's like, well, let's record that. So we recorded that ironically enough so we recorded four songs we had that on a cd um i sent that down to my wife's parents they showed it to their neighbor now this is the same neighbor Mm -hmm. that talked about the npr article right now she had been out with some of her friends and one of them happened to be a lawyer an entertainment lawyer in atlanta she heard the four songs she came to me she's like hey this is really good can i pitch this around atlanta like i can get this in front of outcast and stuff like that uh, and I was like, yeah, definitely. And so she she attempted to do that. Nothing came of it. But once again, me seeing what I was doing through the eyes of somebody like that, uh, it just really showed me that the thing had worth. So I completed the rest of the album in a very you know focused way, put it out. I started doing some local shows. I actually started it with what I call a local tour. I just booked three different shows at three different venues in the same town in the course of a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it really worked because those three shows, and you know, they all knew about each other, so nobody felt ripped off or anything, but it was enough of a story that then it got in the local paper. And I invited this publicist that I really wanted to work with me who was like, nah, nah, I'm too busy. I'm not going to do it. But by the third show, it was kind of this like thing that had caught on. So the third show was totally sold out. There was like, she came in, she was like, I couldn't even find parking out there. And she put it out there. And then before we even started the publicity campaign, one of the songs called Luck went to number one on the 13 under 13 on uh, Sirius XM. Right. A- actually, at that point, just XM, I think. Mm-hmm. It just kind of caught on from there. I mean, at that point, we really knew that we had something. And, and it was perfect because... Not only was it something that was really working and something that I could do and something that I, you know, a ship that I could steer, um, but it was really fun for me. And I really dug doing this kind of music because I'd always been into like positive storytelling, kind of psychedelic hip hop. And all those things work super well in the family market. Right. So I was able to do that. And then, you know, my daughter was on the first album on a couple of songs and you know, she would get up during those first few shows and she'd rap her verses perfectly as a six-year-old. And yeah, I knew something was happening. All right. So I'm going to I'm gonna take you to a different spot right now because mm-hmm. what 
you're, what you're talking about, this, your story is, it's, fan, it's a great story. I mean, it's lovely the way that everything in the end sews together. And then it's just like, oh yeah, and then I just did the work. You know, I just, then I just wrote the same caliber or, or better music and I, I engaged and I just kept going and going. And look, in the end, you know, I won a Grammy and now I'm, I'm on this podcast. It's amazing, which is, is the highlight, of course. Yeah, the podcast is definitely, definitely the highlight. This is it, definitely right. the highlight. Uh, but the thing of it is, like with with other uh, children's musicians, like I'll include myself, but not talk about like myself in this. Yeah, it's a very different path that most people are having to take. For some of them, the desire to end up kind of where you are is pretty strong. From the story that you've shared, it's not. I don't see how anyone could replicate that. How they could duplicate the same story, the same path that you've taken, because there's. There's elements of innovation in the in a new genre. I mean, bringing hip hop to children to, to family music is, like you said, it was new. There was a there was a, a need for that, and then there was also the talent that you had years touring before you even got into the genre. So you you earned your chops doing the hard work, but then there also seems to be this whole thread of right place, right time, right connection, right intent, and that's really difficult to quantify. So well, how do you, I think that, how do you explain that? I think that there's aspects of it that are personal to me that you can't replicate. And then I think that there's each of those kind of, you know, big moments, those, those points that make a constellation. I think that you can replicate aspects of those things to each person though. Right. Mm-hmm. So for instance, the things that you take, um, when it comes to innovation, I mean, yeah, bringing hip hop into family music was definitely innovative, but I think that you can do that even if you're not bringing a new genre in. I think you have to do that. I think that innovation is really important. I think that having a unique sound, something that is very true to you uh, and something that is not like everything else that's out there in the landscape, that is really important. When it comes to being in the right place at the right time, you know, it's kind of like that quote, luck's where opportunity meets with preparation, right? All those things happened, but they happened because I was doing the mundane things. Mm-hmm. Like if I hadn't, you know, chosen to book a show for myself and get out there as like just a solo MC, then that dude never would have found me. He right. wouldn't have called me. Wouldn't happen that way. If I hadn't been actively talking about the fact that I was trying to forge a new musical path for myself, that neighbor never would have told me about the NPR piece. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't recorded those songs and then taken them, started putting them on CDs and spreading them around a bit, then the lawyer lady never would have gotten in touch with me. You know, so each of these things, it's like if you choose to create something that you think is really awesome and really different and then you start putting it out there, then there will be people who react to that. And those people that react to that, in in a certain sense, that's just chance and odds and coincidence and kismet and whatever you want to call it. But in another sense, I mean, it's very strategic. If you take a bunch of music and you put it out in a bunch of ways, then somebody who's going to be a believer who has the ability to either, you know, have a connection that helps you move forward or just have the type of personality that allows you to see yourself in a better light. Mm -hmm. uh, Those people are going to be there, but they're only going to be there if you get yourself out there and do that. That, you know, kind of harkens back to what I was talking about, about go play live shows. Right. It's the only way you're going to meet people. You Do you find, uh, especially at the beginning, did you feel vulnerable getting out there and doing that? 
Oh, yeah, man. Crazy vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> I'd been in a band for years, right? But first of all, being in a band with 12 to 13 or whatever people, there's always something to hide behind. And second of all, this, these are nightclub bands. You know what I'm saying? Like, I had to learn to rap. And then 10 years later, I had to learn to rap sober. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. a completely different thing. And at that point, I was really... I don't know, trying something new. I mean, I think that one of the reasons why, you know, there's not a lot of people doing family hip hop is that there's a certain, there's a certain feeling about hip hop is that it's like, you know, it's got to be rebellious. It's got to be kind of hardcore. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's fun to swear. It's fun to talk about certain things, you know? And it's like, you know, I I was thinking about this the other day. It's like sometimes making family hip hop is like, trying to make really good food with no hot sauce, you know, Mm -hmm. or like without like very hardcore spices in any direction. It's just got to be like, you know, really solid food on its own. And so doing that, some of the crutches that I naturally had weren't there. And I had to kind of like reestablish what my persona was going to be on stage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was that was interesting and definitely vulnerable. I mean, I think stage is always vulnerable, though. I'm one of those people that's performed for 20 years and still gets stage fright, like, pretty much before every show. Mm-hmm. I mean, now I've kind of learned that it's just, there's a very fine line between stress and excitement, and you can kind of, like, turn that dial in your head. Mm-hmm. But it's always intense. Yeah, and to me, it doesn't matter the size of the show. I get freaked out more in front of, like, six kids at a, at a, a, a small library event sometimes than I do when I do like a big stage event. Way more. It's that intimate thing. And it's like that the expectations are all just right there. That's right. And it's also that there's your job as a performer is to sort of change the frequency of the room. Mm -hmm. And if there's already a whole lot of people there ready to see the show, they're like most of the way there already. All you really have to do at that point is come out, you know, electrify them real quick. And the, and the whole thing just catches, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the fewer people there are, the harder the harder it is to do that and the harder it is to keep that together, keep going. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, some of your later releases because it's funny. Like, I don't want to tell you, like, my favorites of yours or something like that. Wake Up the Dream had some of the best singles on it. I mean, there were some tracks on that that I just was like, ah, I, I think this is so top of the game type stuff. But then, Thanks, as, but then as albums go... Uh, Perfect Quirk and Infinity, Infinity Plus One both were solid releases within themselves, uh-huh. uh, which is it's hard to do once and it's really hard to do twice. And with with both of those, you ended up uh, at the Grammys with Perfect Quirk and Infinity Plus One. And uh-huh. one of those times, I think, let me check my notes. Oh yeah, you you took one home, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Glad you got that written down. There. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I just had to check on that. Yeah. yeah. So, like from the outside, I think everybody who writes music eventually has aspirations to have that sort of recognition. But how did that feel? I mean, it felt great. One of the greatest parts about it was that you know my daughter was six when we started, and then you know ten years later, as she's sixteen, as I know that she's kind of becoming a young woman and. You know, she's certainly kind of growing out of the the thing that we're doing. It was such a, an amazing kind of like cherry on top of the whole experience to be able to, you know, go up on stage with her. And I didn't even grab the Grammy. I let her do that, you mm-hmm. know, because, I mean, she was the inspiration for everything. She put in a lot of time herself on the road and uh, in the studio and whatnot. And the whole thing for her, you know, seeing the experience of, yeah, you can 
Like I'm trying to figure out the right things to tell her at this point as she, she's about she's going to turn 18 later this month. Mm. And I'm trying to, you know, boil my advice, life advice. I'm like, you know, if this story means anything, what does it mean? And what I'm trying to tell her basically is like, whatever you're going to do in life, you're going to have to work really hard at it if you want to get good at it, if you want to get great at it. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody wants to be great at something. So you better choose something that you really like to do because that's the only way you're going to have the motivation to work as hard as you need to work at it to actually get great at it. You know, money's not going to motivate you like that. You know, for her to be able to watch from behind the scenes, you know, watch me grow as a musician, watch me grow as a businessman, watch herself grow as somebody who could get on stage and do those things and, you know, go through some of the grueling times of like touring all over the place and sometimes nobody being at the shows and sometimes not making money off of it and trying to make that whole thing work. For her to be able to see that that culminated in that thing, which, I mean, ultimately, the award doesn't change the music, right? Mm. The music already exists. The award comes afterwards. It doesn't change my perception of the music. I don't think it changes her perception of the music. It does change other people's perception of the music, which then helps with business. Right. And she can see that, too. So I think I don't mean to put this all only through her eyes. I mean, my experience was, yeah. It was awesome. Like it was for me, it was like I try not to get too wrapped up and let it act like it makes, you know, that album any better than any other album that I've put out or, you know, me better than any other musician in the world or anything like that. But I certainly knew when it happened that I would be able to now accomplish some of the things that I've really wanted to, like, you know, to be able to do projects where I had to convince people that what I was doing was, uh, you know, legitimate, Mm -hmm. which has actually been difficult. I mean, that's the weird thing about doing hip hop for kids. People have this impression of hip hop, you know, like I was saying before that, you know, I imagine anybody does punk for kids or metal for kids or industrial for kids or something like that would know what I'm talking about or Mm -hmm. burlesque for kids. I don't even know if that's a thing, but um, something that's traditionally rebellious and gritty and, you know, has that type of feeling to it. People think that that can't be appropriate in the family scenario. Even after I was doing it for like, eight years, even after, you know, having a Grammy nomination, even after playing the Smithsonian and Lollapalooza and all kinds of stuff, we would still try to book shows and they'd be like, oh, I don't know, hip hop. I mean, that still happens now. Mm. People think that we're going to bring a certain vibe in and they, they don't want to book it. For us to have that type of gold standard, though, it has been helpful. You know, hip hop for kids makes certain people go, oh, I don't know. That sounds dangerous. But when you go Grammy winning hip hop for kids, they're like, oh, other people like it. I suppose it'll be fine. <laughs> you know, when I had a kid, I knew that I would have to work really hard so that I could buy really good, healthy food. And I knew that I would have to figure them out and figure out what kind of food they like and then go and buy that really healthy, good food that they like. I didn't know that after all that, I would still have to convince him to eat it. <laughs> and like, I feel the same way when it comes to this music stuff, you know? <laughs> Is it ever going to be good enough? Is it ever going to be good enough? <laughs> I know. I'm like, I've worked for decades to like refine this amazing thing. And I know it's awesome. And I know it's what you already like, but I still have to convince you to eat it. <laughs> Okay, and this is the perfect segue to roll out a song by Secret Agent 23 Skidoo off of his first Grammy-nominated album, The Perfect Quirk, one of my favorite of his tunes, track number three, if you're following along at home, Imaginary Friend. 
lovers. Now you see, now you don't. Strange land, oh. Oh, my imaginary friend says I'm the imaginary friend, which means I'm imaginary then. If he's right, and I'm really not sure that he's wrong, so I might be made up like the words to this song. My imaginary friend says I'm the imaginary friend, which means I'm imaginary then. If he's right, and I'm really not sure that he's wrong, so I might be made up like the words of this song. I got a friend named Pickles. His favorite food is mustard popsicles. He's got green hair and orange skin, and nobody has fun more than him. He's the sort of friend nobody can see. Nobody but me. You're like, what do you mean? He's imaginary, invisible, but he's never scary. Nah, he's really cool. He's silly too. He's an acrobat. He does backflips while we play hacky sack. Nobody fasts us when we run in races, but he cracks me up, making funny faces. It gets on my nerves when he's sitting in a chair and people sit on him like Pickles isn't there. Come on. He's real, just like me. Only one thing on which we disagree. My imaginary friend says I'm the imaginary friend, which means I'm imaginary then. If he's right, and I'm really not sure that he's wrong, so I might be made up like the words that is saw. My imaginary friend says I'm the imaginary friend, which means I'm imaginary then. If he's right, and I'm really not sure that he's wrong, so I might be made up like the words that is saw. I say he's the imaginary part of our friendship. Then he laughs very hard and says, "Who me? No, couldn't be. And I really don't know who I should believe." Cause when you think about it, the kid's got a point. It's a 50-50 chance, like I'm flipping a coin. He says that the world he sees is quite different. And when he has dinner, I go inside with him and sit on a chair with his green-haired family. But no one can see that I'm there, so I can't be real. But real's the way I feel. But hey, so does he. So we made a deal that either neither of us is the co-star in this imaginary movie, or we both are. Is it really so hard to believe there are different worlds and some are harder to see? My imaginary friend says I'm the imaginary friend, which means I'm. I'm imaginary then. If he's right, and I'm really not sure that he's wrong, so I might be made up like the words of this song. My imaginary friend says I'm the imaginary friend, which means I'm imaginary then. If he's right, and I'm really not sure that he's wrong, so I might be made up like the words of this song. And now things change, like we push on the lever of a switch, and I'm rich with imaginary treasure 'cause whatever he can see, I can see too. In his world, the sea is green like pea soup, and the sky is purple. The clouds can talk, but not as loud as rocks. We go out for walks, and I'm speechless 'cause it's all so nuts watching trees. Kiss and waterfalls flow up. He's like, so what? But he gets amazed at Earth 'cause it works in different ways. He stares when airplanes streak through the sky 'cause he thinks they're birds with people inside. Got scared of a guy that he saw hang glide, and he still won't believe that my dog can't drive. We both like jokes and love to solve riddles, but I still can't stand those mustard popsicles. Serious? Those things are disgusting. What is he thinking? According to Wikipedia, you know you've got tons of Grammy nods. I mean, you were on Lucy's album, and you worked with the Sugar Free All Stars and got the Grammy nod. So I mean, you've been you've been circling that that thing for quite a while, which I think is yeah. fantastic. So here's one thing I'll say, which is ironic, because this is uh, completely opposite of my earlier advice about getting out there and playing shows and meeting people and all that. So in, what was it, 2012, my family moved out to California. 
to some people, they think that we moved to L.A. It's like, oh, let's go to L.A. and get big. And we did the opposite. We moved from Asheville to a very small town in Northern California called Grass Valley. A lot of that's because my wife grew up in California and she always wanted to move back here. But honestly, the prices of houses here are insane. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but we had friends that lived in this area. Now this is, uh, in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas, it's about three, two and a half, three hours away from the Bay. We came here and visited and it's a beautiful little town. And honestly, the real estate and the prices of houses, you know, to rent, to buy, whatever, were pretty much the same here as they were in Asheville. So all of a sudden it was kind of an attainable dream that we could move out here. And we just, you know, we're both adventurous like that. And we thought it might be a good time to just pull up stakes and completely change our lives. And so we did. Now, when I came out here, all of a sudden, I didn't know anybody. Mm. I knew, like, everybody in Asheville. We were there from 96 when it was basically a ghost town until it grew up into this mecca of, like, music and art and beer. And, like, our our band was pretty influential during that time period. So it's like, man, I was freestyling with every band there. We were collaborating. We were having a great time. So all of a sudden, I'm out here, and I just don't know anybody. That was a crazy experience, you know? I think it turned me a little bit into an introvert in a good way, just in the sense of, like, you know, when no one's there and there's nothing to distract you, you really go inside mm -hmm. and you really find out who you are. And th there's a lot of power in that. Now, another thing that happened is, you know, I got more savvy about being online and a little bit more savvy about social media and that kind of thing. So if you notice, after coming out here, the next two albums that I did are the two that you mentioned that you thought were really good and also the two that got some Grammy recognition. That's partially because I think those albums are a little bit more clear vision than the ones from before. And that's because I had the space and the time out here to really think about what it is that I was trying to do. And then I would go back to Asheville and work with musicians there. And I would do it in a really quick manner. I'd go back and, you know, we might come up with the music, practice the music and record the music all within a week. Like we pretty much did that twice. Oh. And then I'd come back here and I would just be by myself and I'd sit down and really think about it. And then I'd write the lyrics and just kind of, you know, almost like be in a cave by myself writing the lyrics and all that. So I think that solitude really helped with that. And then when it was time to actually focus on, well, hey, you know, maybe we could, you know, really get some traction with the Grammy world with this thing. I think that solitude, again, gave me the time to actually be disciplined enough to really push it out there. Uh, you know, through social media and whatnot and get people to listen to it. Mm -hmm. So I think that both of those things are really important, right? I mean, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of an extrovert and an introvert at the same time. And I think a lot of people could probably relate to me like that. I think that a lot of performers can relate to that. Mm -hmm. I know so many people who are very comfortable being on a stage in front of people, but they don't like really being in that crowd at all. I'm kind of that way as well. And I think that if you know, if you know what your strengths are, you know, if you're an extrovert, get out there. You know what I'm saying? Get out as much as you can. Talk to people. Make connections. If you're an introvert, learn how to do that online. Mm. And if you have a combination of both of those things, then figure that out. When you're in an extroverted mood, go be extroverted. When you're in an introverted mood, go be introverted. Like, there's no reason to push yourself to become something that you're not because whatever your skills are, there's a way to leverage them to, you know, get your stuff out. That's pretty poignant, especially for me coming from, like, I'm in Montana. There's nothing around here. We play every gig in the county that comes up because there's, actually, there's one other kids band in town. You know, there's only there's only so much that you can do within 50 miles of your house. The only way to ever get, the, get into the next stage, the next 
ring sphere of influence is either tour or figure out that online network thing. Uh-huh. Touring is tough when you have kids. And like you did it because that's where you started. For me, you know, I got a four or five piece band. We've got gear and PA. I mean, we've got just <laughs> junk. Yeah, we got a van full of stuff and people have to take time off work and then they have to schedule it with their... It isn't the great rock and roll adventure. So it's, I'm just saying it's tough to, you know, it's tough to line that stuff out. I understand, man. From being in the band before with the 12 people, I mean, at one point we had two drum sets, right? So imagine load in and load out when it comes to two drum sets, as well as bass amps and key keys and, you know, kungas and everything. Uh, so I learned my lesson with that, man. We play with backing tracks now, and it's sweet. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and I think I knew that. It was like uh, on, was it Infinity Plus One, where you yeah. actually have all the backing tracks after the album. Like yeah. the vocals. Yeah, and I that's was right. like I heard that the first time I heard that I was like, Oh, that guy's brilliant. He can go anywhere and say, You want a concert? Got my C D? Yeah, put that on. Let's go. <laughs> you know. Not you know, not completely, but heck of a lot easier uh, than close I Close enough, man. Close <laughs> enough. I mean, that's one way that we've really built our thing is to make it road ready like because we know that, you know, you do have to be a visual phenomenon at a show. That's important. Mm-hmm. people with instruments you know you can really do it with the instruments you know you got guitars and you like thrashing them around and everything like that that takes up a lot of the um the stage space we knew that we didn't have that or didn't want to have that i mean honestly if i could i would i love playing with a live band if i felt like i could get away with that i felt you know if i could get like a whole horn section and like a live band and whatnot we've done it a few times and it's my favorite mm-hmm. but i also know what the market is and i know how much they can pay and I know that if I do that, then I'm back in the exact same boat I was with my old school band, where it's like we go have an amazing time and we come back and we each got 20 bucks. Right. I really built this version of it based on what didn't work with the last thing. Uh-huh. And one of that is I want to be streamlined. I want to have as few people as possible, but make it as big of a show as possible. So that's why we brought dancers into it. Uh-huh. And that's why we also... You know, we got a uh, choreographer and we learned how to really fill up the stage and have moves that we do to keep even the theater stage uh, looking full, even if there's only three of us, five of us, or depending on whichever version they bring out. But just five of us on a big theater stage, because we've learned how to use that space and because we've learned how to peacock ourselves visually, Mm -hmm. it works. And that's great because honestly, when we roll in with a few banners that we put up and like, the laptop for the backing tracks. And then I think back to the two hour load ins that we used to do with my old band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just the maintenance on gear alone kills you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, all right. So, there's some. So, the other thing that I'm really interested in is the business of the business. Uh, all through this conversation, you've been hitting on some things that have really like piqued my interest. And I'm like, yep, okay, yep, I, I hear you. Because it is, in the end of the day, if we all had unlimited resources, man, we could we could put on a heck of a show. Imagine the albums, you know. Imagine where we could be if we didn't have to pay for this stuff. Exactly. But it's a business, and it's it's always about sacrifice. Sacrifice away from family. Sacrifice uh, as far as where your creative energy goes. And there's a financial sacrifice that's associated uh, with it as well. And people often feel uncomfortable talking about that just in general, because mm-hmm. sometimes I think it takes away from the magic that we want to hold on to of the great creative you know, process. 
but having been for me having been doing this for a while no man there's there's ledgers there's spreadsheets and bottom lines and things that that affect it not affect the creativity but affect the ability and the scale yeah so when you're if you're talking to somebody who's say that you're talking to uh, a songwriter who's into kindy music they're putting out their first album they've got a little three-piece you know they stand on the stage and they've got a bass and they've got a little, little drum set and they're playing acoustic guitar and they really are excited about this from the business side of it what are the what are some things that you would say to them well i guess one thing is there's being a studio band and there's being a live band and that doesn't have to be the same thing if you understand what your essence is you can have a studio experience that is very different than what your live band experience is mm-hmm. a great example of that um if you've ever seen the pop-ups mm-hmm. Those are some of my favorite cats. Mm. And if you listen to their albums, you know, it's just like fully layered with like big band, a lot of synths. Sometimes there's horns, Crazy all lush. kinds of stuff. Yeah. yeah, very lush, very lush. Lots of layers. You know, I, I think they've played, they've played with a live band a number of times. I don't think it's as big as what it sounds like on the album. You know, I mean, it's not like as many layers or whatever. But predominantly what they do is they'll play a show where they have that backing tracks. But then also they have this whole other angle where they're really amazing with puppetry, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So you have this live version of it, which is a total spectacle, but it's just the two of them, and they have all these puppets, and they're doing this thing. And then you have the album version, where it's, you know, they actually do a whole lot of the music themselves by doing layers and layers, but then they also bring people in to do horns and whatever, whatever else. And those are two very different things. I mean, they are playing them as backing tracks and all that, but what you hear and what you see are not the same thing. So I think a lot of people limit themselves because they think we can't do anything on the album that we can't do live. Mm-hmm. And so they end up, you know, being a trio. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, some trios are fantastic. They're great to listen to. They're great live, you know, all of that. But I think if you do want to stand out and if you do want to have something unique, be innovative like we were talking about before, I don't think it's good to limit yourself by that that yardstick by saying you know we can't do anything in the studio we can't do live because then people are going to feel ripped off they're not going to feel ripped off unless you don't give them a spectacle so i think there's ways to be creative and make those two different things that'd be one piece of advice what happens next is skidoo and i have a quick conversation about producing albums and one of the questions i put to him is uh, well what are your favorite songs that you've done because i think i know i have my favorites and I wanted to know where, where he landed. Well, one of the songs that he said was his favorite was Imaginary Friend, which we already listened to. The other one is off of Infinity Plus One, the album that he won the Grammy for, and it's called Glimmer. So I'm going to play the song now so that you get a feel for it, and then you can listen to the conversation that we had about that song. I love you for the way you shine Someday I'm gonna make you mine, I swear I'll fly all the way there I'll see you soon, it won't be long I'll love you even when you're gone, I stare And watch you float through the air You ever seen a moth around a flickering flame? Getting so close, it's almost an Icarus thing Yo, that's deep love, even if you consider it strange Here's a story of a different moth glimmers her name She shimmered and changed in a beam of light From green to white, when seen in flight She gleamed like a dream might Fuzzy soft wings held her aloft like a balloon Who'd have thought a lunar moth would fall in love with the moon? 
but that's what happened. She was a younger moth back then, fresh from the cocoon. Fluttering and flapping with the buddies and laughing. In the summer, just basking in firelight. Till our eyes find the brightest sight at the highest height. Deep in space, just shining. The full moon's face looked like it was laced with diamonds. The song of the sirens sang to us sweetly with a searchlight. And love at first sight hit her completely. Turn light to magic like a prism The hypnotism made her dizzy One quick decision and she's on a mission Candles with no competition The apparition spoke to her, she had to listen Soon glimmer the lunar moth was shooting off the planet Into the stars, space is truly large It expanded as she vanished She managed talking friends into coming along For them, the moon song wasn't as strong As they flew, the weeks did too The moon was fading And soon both the moon and the interest started waning After debating, they turned back to go home Through the ozone Glimmer never been so alone now the moon was gone, but she flew on into blackness and cold stars so far from home fighting sadness. But she had this crazy energy inside her, relying on her love and her memories to guide her. I love you for the way you shine. There were moments of doubt, floating out in space, forgetting what hope was about. Couldn't count how many times she almost turned back. Then the moon waxed, and its pure flash cured that. As it grew, it was huge, a crescent-shaped blessing. Effervescent, incandescent light, caressing all the questions away. Like a message in space, telling her she would be resting in a heavenly place. And every day she flew, that moon just got bigger. Took glimmer, could see shapes like lakes and rivers. But they quivered and fluttered, and they flickered and hovered. Then she saw the moon was covered with the sisters and brothers. A million Another moth that had made the same journey One by one, all alone With the same worries and the same light inside To guide and bring them home The wings shone brighter than anything she'd known It's crazy because to me it's really personal in terms of you know I grew up in a town that I never felt at home in that town I never felt that like the same thing that makes me creative the same thing that makes me successful as a creative person all of that when I was in this small town it made me feel like a weirdo and a misfit and nobody saw me as anything good for those reasons you know, and it, it, it took me leaving that town and finding other people and other places and evolving somewhat myself to get to the point where those same traits were positive things. Hmm. That's what that song is about, is about, you know, sometimes you have to follow the thing that you love all the way to a place where, you know, everything where you come from 
drops away behind you. That song started with the idea of this moth that falls in love with the moon that wants to go there. And then as she goes there, the moon starts to wane. I don't think that song is scientifically correct when it comes down to it, but symbolically it works. The moon has completely waned and there's no moon there anymore. And she's just flying through space towards the memory of the thing that she loved, just hoping it comes back. Mm -hmm. Like that's such a heart wrenching idea. But I think that's something that most musicians know in and out. Yeah. And so that song really means a lot to me because, you know, what with the happy ending and all. And the funny thing about that one is multiple, multiple people have come up to me and been like, that song's about death, right? And I'm like, whoa, I didn't see that at all. And I think that's the greatest thing is if you tell the story correctly, everybody gets a different meaning from it. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's it's one of those things that, you know, I kind of did accidentally because I knew what the story meant to me and I did it. And then other people had, and you know, there's been other people having completely different meanings on that one too. But I love the idea of telling a story that is so uh, symbolic and kind of archetypal that people can see themselves in it. I had that one in my back pocket for years because I couldn't quite figure out how to do it. Right. Hmm. Um, Do you think, do you think you got it? Oh yeah, I definitely think I got it. And what it came down to was the instrumentation. It came down to the idea that, like, number one, it had to be that singer. When I heard her voice, I was like, oh, yeah, she sounds like, okay, so here's the crazy thing, right? Luna moths are born without mouths. Oh. They're born, they'll never eat, they'll die. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, talk about the idea of everything being transient. Mm. You know, it's, it's, so it kind of is about death, you know? And, and that, that girl's voice, she was, I think, 17 or 18 at the time of singing that. She had this, like, perfect mix of this, like, youthful innocence, but then this kind of, like, knowing and this, like, little bit of grit to it. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, yeah, that's the sound of that song. And then going into the instrumentation, I also realized that if I only used um, acoustic, mostly uh, pizzicato you know, string instruments Mm -hmm. that it would feel that way. You know, it would feel light, like the whole song had to float. Yeah. Wow. Well, you definitely brought it together as far as I can tell. Thanks, man. Yeah. So what's next for you? Um, I want to explore how Balkan horns and synth, like big analog synth stuff works together. Wow. (laughs) I have a session booked uh in a few days actually with a great horn section and my favorite synth player and we're just gonna see how that works that was amazingly <laughs> specific <laughs> i was like well you know i might be doing a new album i i got some stuff coming it's like no you know exactly what's going that's like i i got tuesday down two o'clock i'm gonna be there that's fantastic how are you gonna release it like how how are you going to uh how do you want to share this i'm not sure yet because we're just kind of putting our foot in it it could be a new album. It could be a new EP. It might be singles. I'm not exactly sure, man. It kind of depends on how the whole thing rolls out. You know, it's uh, all I want to know at this point is what happens if you take big, funky Balkan horns and then put like really crunchy analog synth in there and then, you know, have a great drummer, but then also a drum machine and then turn that into party music for families. Wow. That's what I want to figure out right now. Wow, I'm excited to hear that. You have to you have to share something uh, with me. You have to send me a demo first because you know <laughs> that's that sounds like just a heck of a fun time. 
Uh, who knows? By the time this comes out, maybe I'll send you a little rough. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll put it in here and totally it'll be the big spoiler and that'll be it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Skidoo, for your time. Yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate it. You know, this is a really, you know, this people will know, those in the know will know, this is being recorded, what, like a week after the whole thing happened with um, Sirius XM Channel 78 being saved by the fans? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, those in the know know what that means, and those 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 that are part of it understand what that means is that there's this big scene of family musicians and families and we don't always get to see each other because it's not like it's a geographically centralized scene mm -hmm. you know it's all just coming together based on a concept sort of so sometimes we don't even get to see each other or know how big of a scene or how potent or important of a scene it is but little moments like that just make you realize like no there's thousands and thousands of people that really care about this yeah it was that was a really rough 24 hours uh in the biz in the kindy biz when that happened yeah. and it had like the best happy ending that was so unexpected. it really did i was i was really that was really cool and you know for me this podcast is all about the fact that when i got into this scene there were you know anytime i asked anybody for help they were there and they were like oh you know i remember um uh, Joni Leeds, I sent her an email just out of the blue, like, hey, what kind of guitar case do you do you travel with? And she was like, oh, well, this is the kind, and it's protected by guitars, and you should do this. And I was like, oh, cool, thanks, and then got one. And it's like that. Yeah, Joni Leeds told me I should probably sign up for Grammys and look into that, maybe. <laughs> did she? Man, I got to. She sure did. Okay, so I got to talk to Joni now. I got to figure out how to get her on the podcast. Oh, we'll figure that out. No, okay, it's man. true. It was like the last day that you could even sign up to be part of it on one year, and I was like, all right, I guess I'll try it. I don't know. This seems like a whole headache or something like that. But she's like, no, you should do it. <laughs> wow. Well, I'll tell her you, you remember that next time I remember. Oh, I do. I've thanked her for it multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Okay, man. Well, right, keep, keep on doing what you're doing, and we'll keep listening. Same to you, man. Peace. Right. Peace. And thus ends the conversation. Special thanks to Secret Agent 23 Skidoo for taking the time to open up his mind and spread like sweet jelly all of his experience on the toast of the Barn Banter podcast. You know, I thought that analogy would probably work better than it did, but it just sounds kind of weird. So my apologies to Secret Agent 23 Skidoo for a uh, bad jam analogy. But in the end, I learned quite a few things. So that was cool. And I got to talk to a cool guy, which is also pretty cool. If you have any questions about the podcast, if you have any comments about the podcast, good or bad, uh, just go ahead and send me the good ones because that's, that's, that would make me happy. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast, then you should like this and uh, like me on Facebook. Then you can send me a message and then we can become friends. And then I can talk to the Playing games, we all like to be hugged and loved, tucked in our 
dance at night, tall or small, boy or girl. 